Let me just pray for Steve before he gets into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity now to hear from your word. I just want to pray that you will uh, yeah, really give Steve your, your words now as he speaks. And I pray that yeah, you'll really be working in our hearts, Lord. Help us to listen attentively and, uh, and really meet us where we're at, Lord, and, and encourage us from, from this passage. Uh, and so I just commit this to you in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you'd like to turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. And before we begin, I'll pray again. Dear Lord, we come before your throne of grace now and we pray for mercy and for grace to help in this time. Lord, we pray that this sermon would not be in vain, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate people's minds to the truths of this passage. We pray that this sermon would not be mere words, but it would come forth with the full assurance and full conviction of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. There was a cartoon in a paper that showed a man ready to leap off a high-rise apartment building. And he had a suicide note in one hand and a parachute strapped to his back. And his wife, leaning out of the window, said, You just can't make up your mind about anything, can you, Harry? And I think um, this story, although humorous, is indicative of our today's society with the fact that the time-honoured truth of commitment has fallen on hard times. And we see this with the rise of divorce, the the, uh, decline of marriage, And also, recent statistics reveal a rapid drop in church membership. I also personally know of a Christian lady who wouldn't marry someone without signing a prenuptial agreement. But there is one area where commitment hasn't fallen on hard times, and that's with elite sportsmen. How many of you watch the Rio Olympics? My sons absolutely loved it. They were, they were on their feet cheering the Aussies, particularly the swimming. But these, these athletes, when they stand on that podium and they get that gold medal, it's not through, it's not by chance. It is from by hours and hours and hours of sacrifice and pain and commitment. I remember reading one man who encapsulated this. He was a runner. And he said that when he's, no matter how bad things go when he's running, no matter how, he said his, his heart and his mind would carry his limbs when his body felt like it was failing. Just such a high level of commitment. And it made me wonder, 
when I was preparing this, can we imagine if Christianity had this high level of commitment? Yeah, in the last several years, there is a global movement, not just an Australian movement, that's coming, that is rife on our doors. And it's a sexual revolution. And it's infiltrating our government, it's infiltrating our schools, it's infiltrating our universities, it's infiltrating our homes, it's infiltrating your own thoughts. And it comes out in the form of safe schools. Do you know if they rolled out safe schools that your five-year-old son or daughter has the right, because sexuality is fluid after all, unquote, to confide in their teacher about their own preference. It also comes, this sexual revolution, in the form of, obviously, the push to legalise same-sex marriage. But more than ever, when the forces of evil intensify, as they have and as they will, as the hostility of authorities above us intensify, more than ever, Christians need to be committed. And if we are not, Christianity may die here in the West. So we're going to look at a passage in Nehemiah chapter 10 about Nehemiah and 57 men who in a difficult day like ours, they made a commitment. They made an unreserved, all-out, nothing-held-back commitment. So if, you'd like to turn, if you're not already there, turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. But I want to give you a bit of a brief context to Nehemiah chapter 10 because we're going into a, a new book. Now, I normally um, use a KJV but I thought it probably won't be apt here, so I brought my son's ESV out of his study, and it's got really small writing, so <laughs> bear with me if I don't read it all correct. But in Nehemiah, we read this in chapter 9. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood, confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. So we see here, as a result of God's word being read in Nehemiah chapter 8, they confess their sins, they fast, they repent. But as a result of this, they, des they decide to make a serious pledge before God in chapter 10. Now, who are, they, who are these men? Well, Nehemiah is the first in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, on, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah. So as all good leaders do, he was the first one to put his signature on this particular covenant. Then from verses 2 to 8, we have all the priests who sign this covenant. We're going to look at what this covenant is shortly. Then in verses 14 to 27, we have all the leaders of the people. They sign 
this particular covenant. And then in verse 28, it reads this, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the, the, uh, the uh, gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. So we see that even the wives and the children who didn't, couldn't legally put their seal on the covenant, they also committed to this particular covenant. And this covenant had very serious ramifications. We read in verse 28, it was done in front of everyone. Not too dissimilar to a wedding ceremony. That solemn occasion where you make those vows before all your familiar friends and family, before the angels and before God. This covenant was very serious. But in verse 29, we see how serious it was. It says that as a result of making this covenant, it says, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses. By, go, by signing this covenant, they were entering into a curse that if they didn't fulfill the obligations of the covenant, then that would bring God's judgment upon them. So the million dollar question is, what motivated them to do this? In light of our series on Sunday, on Sunday night, what was the life-changing truth that motivated Nehemiah, these 57 men, and all the other people, including the wives and the children, to commit to this covenant? What motivated them? What would motivate you to sign such a covenant? Well, if you read chapter 9, I want to read several verses. This is their prayer to God, and I think you'll see a reoccurring theme that comes out over and over again in their prayer. And I think this is the inner core of what motivated these men. And it's the life-changing truth that should motivate us too in our sanctification. I'll just read them for you. Um, it says this, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them, even when they had made themselves a golden calf, and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. In verse 27, again, this is their prayer just before they signed this covenant. It says, Therefore you gave them into the land of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to, out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And again, yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, 
For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, or mercy if you like. So we see here as they were overwhelmed with God's mercy. They sign this Nehemiah and these 57 men sign a very serious pledge. Now mercy is God stooping in kindness to an inferior. Mercy is God having pity on someone or if you like God being actively compassionate. Not just feeling compassion acting on that feeling and doing something. In the context of these men, they saw God who delivered them out of the land of Egypt. When they, had, when they were enslaved in the bondage of Egypt, when they, were, when they were working their finger to the bone, God looked down upon them in mercy and he delivered them. And they saw that. And as a result of that, they committed themselves to God. And it's the same for us today. What does Paul say in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2? He says, Therefore, brethren, he's talking to us as Christians, I beseech you. That word beseech is a very strong word in the Greek. It's as if Paul is getting upon his knees and he's saying, I have something very serious to say to you. He says, Therefore, brethren, I beseech you by what? The mercies of God. Now the mercies of God in this context is the redemptive mercies of God because it's not what Romans 1 to 12 is talking about. Is how God has saved us and how he has saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Then he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What does he mean by that? Once you put an animal on the altar, there's no turning back. And this is the sort of commitment that God wants for us. The other day, my um, Joe and I thought we'd have a bit of a, a bit of a lie down. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. You know what it's like sometimes on a Sunday. And we thought, no, we won't worry about the kids. They can just, um, they can do whatever they like. <laughs> Bad move. And there was a, de- a deafening silence for about 15 minutes, so we enjoyed that. But then we thought, well, one of us better check the damage. So I got up, and I, well, actually, thinking of the, how it happened, Christian ran in and said, oh, Dad, 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 you have to check this. And uh, I went outside and there was paint smeared over our next-door neighbour's window. So I thought, how did this come about? And to cut a long story short, I I found out that Sammy had cut the paint tin open with an axe, and Christian had decided to throw the paint tin on the next-door neighbour's window. So I spent the next two hours with tarps and water and a little scrubber scrubbing the paint off 
But after about an hour and a half of this, the neighbour came up to have a chat, a bit of a chit-chat, so it was at the start. But he began to open up, and he began to share about his struggles, and as it stand, I got to share the gospel with him. But it made me think that I've been there for 10 years, and I haven't shared the gospel with that man right next door. And it took my son to throw a... Uh, <laughs> a tin of paint on his window. And it, made, and it made me wonder about some of the other areas where it's not so much it's commitment, but it's also being intentional about our commitment. And uh, it opened my eyes at that time to that truth. But I want to briefly, this, um, tonight, I want to look at briefly what specifically did they commit themselves to. And in verse 30, you'll see they committed themselves to the purity of relationships. In verse 31, they committed themselves to the practice of rest. And in verse 32 to 39, they committed themselves to the priority of church. So I just want to spend a couple of minutes on each of these because they do have relevance for us today. But in verse 30, it says this. It says... We will not give our daughters to the people of the land to take their daughters for our sons. So the first part of this covenant that they were signing was that they pledged before God and towards each other that they would not marry anyone outside of the faith. They were forbidden to marry pagan people. Now the issue was not the mixing of races because we know that Ruth and Rahab came to embrace the Israelite faith when they abandoned their own. The issue was that God was concerned that they would lose their faith. So they made a covenant that they would not marry anyone outside of the faith. And we see the ramifications of that in the Old Testament of men that went against this. Now one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible I found is Nehemiah, uh, 1 Kings 11. You've got the wisest man that ever lived. He went against this particular part of the covenant. He married un women that weren't a part of the faith. And do you know what it says? The wisest man that ever lived said his heart was turned away from God. And this isn't an Old Testament thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, it says that we are to marry only in the Lord. I know of a lady who was homeschooled who was a model student. She was an incredible painter. She mentored her, her younger sisters, a remarkable woman. I remember having chills down my spine listening to one of her songs that she'd sang one of the homeschooling conventions. But life fell on hard times for her, and she married an unsaved man. And I bump into this lady because she's, her children go to um, my son's school. 
And she said the most saddest words. She said, the closer I get to God, the further away I get from my husband. And the closer I get to my husband, the further away I get from God. Can you imagine living out that tension in your life? So I want to encourage you, particularly young people, I want to beseech you, I want to entreat you to make sure that you marry someone that's in the faith, someone that is a believer. I want you to remember these words tonight. Will you make sure that you marry someone who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? And I want to encourage all of you, if you know someone that is thinking about marrying someone, that is an unbeliever, is to come alongside to them and and warn them. Firstly, we've seen they committed to the purity of relationships. But secondly, they committed to the practice of rest. Notice verse 31. It says, And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell... We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So you see here that they made this serious commitment also to the practice of rest. Now I'm not a Sabbatarian like my friends at PTC, Presbyterian Theological College. They believe that in the same, most of them do, in the same way that the Jews kept the Sabbath, so are we today. And the reason I don't take that is because out of the the Ten Commandments, Paul elaborates on nine of them, but when it comes to the Sabbath, he seems to give a bit of flexibility with that. We see in Colossians chapter 2 that he talks about the Sabbath being a shadow, in other words, a sign of something already fulfilled. And in Romans chapter 14, he talks about the fact that one man can esteem one day above another, Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. So I think we can have some sort of flexibility with the Sabbath. But I will say this, that before the law, God himself rested on the seventh day. Now he didn't have to do that, he's God. But I think he was setting a pattern for each one of us, that it is good to have a day where we rest. I know that might be difficult if you're a mother with young children, but I think it's important, perhaps if you get your husband involved to help you out, but it is absolutely vital that you have a day where you rest. Not not half a day, not a day to give you time margin, not a day where you're ministering, but an actual day where you rest. I heard someone say that um, a lot of ills in society are caused from either people that don't work six days or from people that don't rest one day. Now in the Bible, the Sabbath has two purposes. The first one is in Exodus chapter 20, which is of course rest. But the second purpose is in Deuteronomy chapter 15, where where it talks about the issue of thinking about redemption. I think that's also important. Now we do that on Sunday, but I think it's helpful to know that when we're coming to church, it's not just attending, it's thinking 
about redemption. I, again, I had a, a, he's a very close friend of mine who took on an interim pastoral role at a church. He worked three days a week. He preached two to three times a week. He was counselling about five or six people on the go. Plus his wife had many, many children. And this guy was under the pump with time. And I remember catching up with him a number of times and I remember saying to him, are you having a day's rest? And he said to me, I just don't have the time. I can't. I just, I wouldn't be, where am I going to fit it in? And it came to the point where he was, the church was voting on whether to have him as their pastor. He rang me on the Tuesday. They were going to vote for him on the Thursday. And he said to me, I don't know what to do. He said, my body feels so weary. He said, I feel like I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. So I don't, he said, I don't enjoy playing with the kids anymore down at the park. Sometimes I lie in my bed for hours. I just can't get up. I'm just, I've hit a brick wall. He said, what am I going to do? And I said to him, you don't actually have a choice. And he's now gone back to secular work. So I'd encourage you, on the basis of principle, not on God's binding authority, is to have a day where you rest. But not only that, have a day that you set aside where you think about redemption. Thirdly, first we've seen they committed themselves to the purity of relationships. Second, they committed themselves to the practice of rest. Finally, they committed themselves to the priority of church. And we see this is from verses 32 to 39. Now, I'm not going to read all these verses, but in every single verse, it mentions the house of God. Now, in the context of the day, it was talking about the, res the restored temple. But in our context, it refers, of course, to church. But notice just the space that's allocated to it. You've got a little bit of space to the, to the purity of relationships, a little bit of space to the practice of rest, and a whole slab on the priority of church. So it shows its relevance. So in every verse, it mentions the house of God in some way, and it culminates in, verse, in the end of the chapter, and it says, We will not neglect the house of our God. And to sum up this section in Scripture, they really committed themselves in two ways to the house of God. Firstly, they committed their finance. And secondly, they committed their time. We see that financial component in verse 32. It says, We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. So they committed themselves, those that were 20 years and older, to paying the annual temple tax. And for us today, that's a commitment to giving our finances to the local church. Now I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
sorry it is second Corinthians <laughs> it says in verse um, it says in verse one it says we want you to know brothers this is about giving this is the relevance of giving for us as New Testament believers so we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia notice this for in severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So we see here two things from these. From verse 2, we see that their giving wasn't dependent upon their circumstances. They were in extreme poverty. And notice in verse 3 it says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own record. So they gave beyond their own resources. But notice verse 5, it says this, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So they gave beyond their circumstances, beyond their resources, and they gave of themselves when it came to giving. But notice also in verse 5, it says this, And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. Sorry, verse uh, 9, it says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by, by his poverty might become rich. So what motivated them in their giving? It was Jesus Christ. He was rich, and yet he became poor so not only in prioritizing the church not only gave of their finance but they gave of their time notice in verse 34 it says this we the priests the levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of god according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the Lord. Now the fire on the brazen altar burned 24-7. So they needed a, a regular supply of wood. Now wood was a precious commodity in those days. Now we can't think of this text in our modern mindset. If we need a bit of wood... We'll go down to BP and buy a stash. They didn't necessarily have that um, recourse. Well, well, they certainly didn't. And what opened my eyes to this is when I went camping down at Jamison a few months ago, that Steve Taylor said, well, we've got to go get some wood for the fire. So we, I didn't realise quite what was involved. And no doubt there's similar aspects to what was involved when they had to get wood back in their day. We, had to get into, we got into the car, we had to find the wood for a starter. You couldn't just chop down any tree. Then you had to, ro you had to, chop down the, you had to roll down these logs off, off, the, off the mountain. You had to then chop up the, these logs into little bits, throw them on the trailer, then drive all the way back home and then throw them off the trailer. Now, these guys didn't have an electric chainsaw. They, 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 didn't, have a, um, they didn't have a trailer, they didn't have a car. So very much so, this was speaking about the time that they invested in getting this wood to the altar. It was a precious commodity and it would have taken them a lot of time. 
So the relevance for us is in prioritising our church, what time do you give to this church? Now for you, it may mean going on the cleaning roster. It may mean going on the morning tea roster. It may mean going to a working bee. It may mean committing yourself to a certain ministry that corresponds with your gifting. But what it will mean is in some way giving of your time and your, and your finance to this church. These guys made a solemn commitment. Will you? After the first world war the US gave vast amounts of money to dislocated orphans in Europe and it wasn't enough to meet the need and there was one man who came in to one of these locations and his stomach was protruding his face was gaunt his body was emaciated and he was holding his daughter in his hand and she too like her father her eyes were big very unusually so her legs and her arms were far too thin for a, a girl of her age. And the father walked in and he said, Can you take, can you please take this girl? And they said, are you the father? And he said, yes. And they said, we're terribly sorry. We can't, we can't even house full orphans here, let alone half orphans. And he pleaded with this man behind the desk. He said, I can't work. I'm half starved. I feel sick. I, I can't look after this, my, my daughter. So can you please take her? And again the man said, I'm terribly sorry. Again, we've, we can't even meet the needs of full orphans. We can't take her. This is a true story, by the way. And the man then said to, the father then said to the other man, he said, do you mean that if I was dead, that you would look after my daughter? You would clothe her, you would feed her, and she would be looked after. I said yes. 
He then leant down on his knees and he embraced that frail body closely to his body. He looked into her eyes said, I love you. He grabbed his little daughter's hand and he placed it in the hand of the man behind the desk and he said, I'll take care of that. And do you know that God when he looked out at the Israelites they were enslaved to those Egyptians as I said they worked their finger to the bone they were in utter bondage God said I'll take care of that and he delivered them because of his mercy and today for us God has sent his son to die on the cross and because of his mercy he's taken care of our sin and I want to encourage you to stand with these men in Nehemiah chapter 10 and commit yourself to God for no other reason but because of the mercy of God. Now it says in Psalm 103 verse 13 and it relates back to my story. It says, As a father pitieth his children as that man did his daughter. So the Lord pitieth us. And the Lord has pitieth us in giving his son. So will you this, this evening stand with these men because of God's mercy? Now for these men, it was the issue of rest, the issue of purity of their relationships and the issue of church it may be something different for you I don't know what area in your life that you need to make a stand on the Holy Spirit may be prompting you now but were you as I said for no other reason but because of the mercy of God will you present your bodies a living sacrifice what does it say in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 he said it is, it is pleasing unto the Lord so will you have an unreserved nothing held back commitment based on the mercy of God Let's pray. Oh God, I pray 
for each one of us that we would be touched by your mercy. Lord, throughout the whole Bible, you have used your mercy to motivate believers into service. Right back from the start all the way up to today, Lord, will you motivate us because of your mercy? For nothing else will your mercy motivate us. Lord, And I pray to, your, to you, Holy Spirit, may you show us in the inner recesses of our hearts the areas in our lives that we need to change, motivated by your mercy, that we need to commit to so that we would have an unreserved, all-out, nothing-held-back commitment for you. O Lord, open our eyes to your mercy. May we see it afresh tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.